and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to finish his dissertation and to eventually get a job. Uh, today, I am being joined by Professor Ted Underwood, who is a professor of information sciences and English at University of Illinois, Champaign, uh, Urbana-Champaign, not Champaign-Urbana, right? <laughs> right, always uh, that way. Always that? Why do I think Champaign-Urbana? The town Champaign-Urbana, the university always Urbana-Champaign. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, man, that's 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 confusing. <laughs> but we're not going to be talking about this literary mystery. We're going to be talking about uh, uh, Professor Underwood's most recent book, Distant Horizons, uh, which takes a big look at literary history. Uh, if you like uh, the interview, which I'm sure you will, you can find uh, Ted Underwood on his Twitter, which is at Ted underscore Underwood. Uh, and you can also find uh, uh, his blog at uh, tedunderwood.com. You you really uh, snapped up the, the, the good URLs for those, didn't you? <laughs> on, the, on those two platforms, yeah. <laughs> um, so so this is a bit unusual because you are a, you're in an English department, and this is called making of a story, and we re, we usually talk about history. Um, and reading through your book, I, I, I found something that was really kind of surprising to me, which is that, like, the novel has a history. Like, I, I've been reading novels since I was a little kid, and I, I kind of didn't realize that that they began and they changed over time. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about, like, what this history is? Yeah, I mean, you know, we often sort of casually use the word novel almost as a synonym for book. But in yeah. fact, stories were being told for, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years before really what we think of as novels came around. And um, there are different ways of telling that story. But one, one common way of, of explaining it is to say that some of the sort of traditional plot arcs, the neat sort of fairy tale structures of closure that we're used to in stories had to be actually set aside um, in order to make room for something longer, baggier, um, a little bit, a little bit more like what feels like ordinary life um, in the late 17th, early 18th century. And, and those are what we yeah, call yeah. So, so like we, we, we have this thing where we're telling stories around the hearth or something, and that might take like an hour at most. And, and then you yeah. can have this nice fairy tale plot arc like young boy finds a sword ends up being the chosen one defeats the ogre finn but yeah. you're saying that 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 there's two things happening you have something new in the social scene of the 17th century that's that's making people want to like look at at at, at life in a different way and so and they get like a technology a physical book something bigger right. that can contain bigger stories but you can't just have the young boy find the sword and defeat the ogre 25 times. You have to subvert that arc to, to, to make it weird and long. Am I, am I, am I understanding? That's, that's, that's right. I mean, and, and at least one theory of what happens is that you, you deliberately mess up the neat plot arc of a, of a fairy tale or a quest by, by introducing, you know, just random stuff that happens, you know, uh, uh, a barrel washes ashore one day and it's not part of a neat plot arc. Um, but then something happens because of that. And, and that's part of what's involved in, in turning stories into novels. Okay. And that's happens in the 17th century. Yeah. There are, I, people usually say the late 17th century, early 18th. There are, there are different opinions about this, but, but yeah. 
And, and so tell me, give me just a potted history of what happens in the next couple hundred years, as people usually understand it. So we have something like a novel in the late, late 17th, early 18th century. I'm thinking yeah. like, is this like Robinson Crusoe? Yeah, that's a very good example. In fact, uh, you know, an example that people often use to explain what this looks like, partly because it does something that a lot of 18th century novels do, which is um, – kind of pretend to be a real life document, you know, at, at moments like a journal and sort of fool people into thinking that it's a biography. Uh, another very common 18th century pattern is to have novels that look like a series of letters back and forth between you know, several real people. And again, this is all part of this, this what we call realism, a strategy of, of um, trying to get people not to feel that this is a conventional story, but something more like their real lives. Yeah, I, in, in, in my knowledge of 18th century popular culture, I know sometimes people read like things that were purported to be stories about criminals or the king, and it was it was really lies, but it's unclear whether people believed that the things that they were right. reading were lies or not. Right. It's not necessarily exactly a hoax, but it 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 feels like the shape that we, we would associate with a biography. Okay. And that, and, and so since that's different from novels today, that changed at some point yeah. people were, were okay with being hoaxed. Right. Or, or they um, stopped feeling that it was necessary to, to do that in order to produce that effect of, of realism. And again, there are, there are different ways of telling the story, but at least one way of telling the story you know, points forward to Jane Austen as a moment where um, you're able to have an, an omniscient narrative voice, but at the same time, you know, go deeply into what individual people are feeling and yet at the same time have, have a sense that there's enough randomness to the, the picture that it feels like real life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that seems like when I read 18th century novels, they're, they, they, they're, quite structurally they're quite different than than the novels in the 19th century like is with with 19th century novels once you get past the 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 weird verbiage they seem quite familiar but if you read clarissa like <laughs> you need to read it in a different way to enjoy it so right. so if 19th century you get is this could i say it's it's the end of realism like that, that well, it's a, no, it's a it's a different sort of realism it's um you know one way of telling the story is that it's not, I think the term is formal realism. It's not as emphatic about pretending to be a found document. Um, but there are different kinds of realism. And, um, you know, social realism, say, is still an important thing in the 19th century. Getting a slice of lots of different parts of society. It's not just, say, typically about life at court or even in the uppermost echelon of society. So that, that's a particular kind of realism. And also, um, one thing that we found out lately is that describing the physical world really sort of up close and physically is a really important part of 19th century realism. Okay, Sometimes so people, in the, yeah. part of the text starts to be more about like people doing things to the physical world, touching things yeah. and like being in right. body. Okay, so the 19th century, is, as, as I know, is when all the good books were written. Um, that's <laughs> when you get George Eliot, Nostin. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> what, what, so let's just 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 to end our part of history. What happens in the 20th century? Like, do, does I know that when I pick up like James Joyce, that doesn't. I, I, you couldn't call that realism, right? I, 
It's, you know, yeah, that's not usually the word that people use. Um, but there, the thing about the 20th century is there are a lot of different stories about what happens. So there, there is one story that, you know, if you if you look at James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, in the um, sort of uh, Anglo-American tradition, that we talk about modernism as a new experimental stage in the history of fiction. There yeah, are I also always, stories. I that, modernism, and I never understood what that was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, isn't everything modern? It, there, there are different ways of um, different ways of telling the story. I mean, sometimes, for instance, a pr- one particular story about that will emphasize the fall of the omniscient narrator, mm. um, where now you know we're we're completely in some characters' way of, of viewing the world. The stream of consciousness is the phrase that you might have heard that strongly associated with that. But I, I would really also say that this is really just one way of telling the story of what happens in the 20th century. And you could also talk about the rise of different kinds of genre fiction, you know, um, Westerns and romances and, you know, science fiction, what eventually gets called science fiction. There are lots of stories. And part of one way of telling the story would be, in fact, the, the sort of division of fiction into a bunch of different things. Yeah. I'm just thinking about now, like when, when Amazon, gives me a recommendation about what books to read it really start it seems like it's 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 using my past purchases and my reading history to hone in on the number of genres i like you know and these genres yes. have become increasingly specialized uh, yes. you know i'm i'm interested in hard sci-fi or something like that that, that, right. that wouldn't even be be a genre 20 years ago or 30 years ago well yeah yes although I- I, I think, in fact, hard sci-fi probably was actually as as <laughs> as, as far back as the seventies. But, um, and in fact, one of the things that I've been looking at lately is that this story, which is pretty much what I expected to to hear about the the emergence of very specialized genres gradually over the last um, century or or so, is is a little bit um, that may not entirely be the story. Some of these genres really? are real really clear all the way back to the 19th century. Well, let's, let's talk about that in a quick second. Let's just, yep. d- so, so we, we did a, a, a breakneck tour of 300 years of the novel, right? Yep. Um, and that's how people are usually looking at literary history. Let's just talk a little bit about how your work is, 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 is different or novel. Like what's, what's, how are you cracking this story of literary history? That's, 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 that's new. Well, the, the big thing is just that most most of the work that's done in literary history, most of the work I myself have done in the past, focuses on one slice of the story we've just told. I mean, part of the reason why I was constantly hedging and saying this is one way of telling the story there's, is that people have really delved in really deeply to talk about, like, what is modernism um, or, you know, what did Jane Austen contribute? And typically the frame is some somewhere between a single author or a decade or a, a generation or 50 years what i've been doing is is trying to back up and and look at the the big picture really the last 300 years oh. and see what patterns emerge when we look at thousands of books at once so not not necessarily like a turning point with Jane Austen although Jane Austen is still important i don't want to don't want to undersell that but but a bigger trend that mm. um, of in which she might be part. So, so previously, it's there's there's a new tool. Previously, people can just read books, and that takes a long time. Um, yep. And you can read a lot of books, 
and get a, 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 a sense of what's happening over long periods of time. But you have a way of reading thousands and thousands of books. Right. Right. And it's a, it's, you know, ultimately computers are involved here. Also, not just computers, but the people who put together all the text of these books in, in digital libraries so okay. that you can, you know, look at the texts of really hundreds of thousands of novels and, okay. and study them all at once. So, so there's there's a lot that we could talk about about this method, and there there are some controversies about it. But I think it, it it'll be more interesting in this like podcast to talk about what your method can show us. So I'm I'm just gonna to put a pin in the method discussion, just so sure. you know, computers are looking. Computers let us look at at at, at the history of 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 literature in a new way. So let's talk let's talk a bit about genre because I I've long been fascinated with how genres form and change over time because it seems so central to our understanding of what a given piece of of, of art is and yeah. because it's so central it it's it seems kind of impossible to chart a history of it. Like I think about the genres of music that are coming up today that I don't, you know, I feel, yeah. I feel finally old because I listen to music <laughs> and I hate it, you know, <laughs> but, right. but, but that seems like something that's really mysterious. And I've, I've always wondered how, what, what, what we can, can, how we can study them over time. So tell us a little bit about, about literary genres. And, and, and am I right in thinking that, that you can tell us a bit about sci-fi? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's one I've looked at. Um, the, I think the tricky thing about the word genre is that basically that no one knows what it means. It, it's some it's it's some case of you know a French word for kind, basically. Yeah. So it's some kind of book, and we can we can try to define our terms really carefully. But the truth is, it gets used in lots of different ways. I mean, as you say, with music, dubstep is a genre. That's a really recent genre, and it's been around for just a few years. Then there are things like science fiction where, well, really, if we, if we, if we trace the history of the word, that would probably begin in the 1920s. Hugo Gernsback, Amazing Stories, coins and, and sort of promotes that term, science fiction. But of course, fans of science fiction now in 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 reality often look back before that to books hmm. by Jules Verne or Mary Shelley or H.G. Wells before the 1920s and see those as examples of what they would call science fiction. Yeah, it seems back, like the time machine is science yeah. fiction. Yeah, everyone, you know, everyone certainly thinks so, although at the time that's not a term anyone would have used. What do they call so it? Some by the by the 1890s when the when the time machine was written, the words the phrase scientific romance was out there. In some reviewers would have called that a scientific romance. Um, but you know, actually, I've looked at um, library circulating library catalogs, kind of um, libraries that people paid to borrow books from. And, and so they were trying to get people to borrow their books and they were advertising the different kinds of books they have. And you won't find scientific romance anywhere in, in the catalog. Instead, it'll be something like occult fiction or hmm. the mysterious and marvelous. So our concept of science fiction, when we look at Wells or Jules Verne and say that's science fiction, we're really we're really projecting back a term that readers at, at the time, they wouldn't even necessarily have had a, a single term 
for all those books. Yeah, but it seems so like that that that's the problem. It seems like there is something that's like a natural kind that's called like science fiction. When right. we say science fiction, there's a there there. There's there's I I know that it's hard to define. There's and I know it when I see it quality to it, but it seems so solid. There's spaceships, there's aliens, there's right. there's scientists, there's 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 big scales and 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 lasers. Right. So I wonder is that projecting of the term back in time is that wrong is jules jules verne what we would love to do if if we had a time machine what we would what we would do to find out whether we're just projecting we could take a box of contemporary books send them back in time to the you know 19th 1870 and ask readers at the time um which of these books looks to you like what you would call uh, extraordinary voyage or yeah. scientific romance. And if they pick out the books we think are science fiction, then we'd know, ah, they can recognize us just as easily as we can recognize them. And we really are talking about the same thing. The problem is, of course, you know, people in 1870 are now dead. And if we had a time <laughs> machine, we wouldn't need to define science fiction. Well, I, so, I just think yeah. for, for another example of that, I think that there's one of the the, 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 the interesting things about genre is how it, it serves as a gatekeeper for, for for particular groups being able to participate in a given uh, uh, subculture. And I always think of punk because the punk that people listen to today, the big story is that's not real punk. So the story, you know, the, the, the the example here with music is would be if you could send a blink 182 album back to the 1970s and play it for people at a sex pistols concert, would they say this is the same kind of music as the sex pistols? Exactly. That's exactly the question. And, um, you know, I don't want to get too deep, deep into the details of computers, but basically the one of the advantages that computers give us is that we can um, create a, a, a model, I'm going to say, of what people were calling scientific romance in the 19th century yeah. and then use that to – to sort of look at contemporary books. So in a sense, we we are able to get a perspective from the past looking at the present as well as our own retrospective gaze. And when we do that, it turns out that there is something very stable. These things that were called extraordinary voyages or utopias or science fiction, um, different perspectives on that that category all agree with each other so the the thing we call a genre does seem to have been really stable from the second half of the 19th century forward oh wow that's that's really surprising because the i i I imagine that during this time the the valence of science what science meant to people has changed a lot i think i I think now (laughs) what's very curious if you look at science fiction in the 50s or 60s or 70s there's an opportunity for optimism there there's, yeah. there's the, the 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 feeling that 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 somewhere along the line we'll get things right, um, yeah. but today I I, I challenge it's anybody darker. even even the biggest <laughs> techno optimist to make a science fiction about social media that's not dystopian, you yeah. know. But but yeah. that's amazing that even despite that gigantic change in what science fiction means, there's still something somewhat stable about it, and yeah. it, this is true for all genres, right? Well, I mean, it, it's true for several that we think of as big and important. Another example oh. like that is detective fiction. That's You can trace that back all the way to Edgar Allan Poe. 
Um, yeah. You know, and and it's and different perspectives. Whether you call it mystery, whether you call it crime fiction, it turns out they all agree with each other. Um, but it's that's not true for everything by any means. Like um, the thing that some people call the gothic, sometimes called horror. Yeah, that, those are a bunch of different things. You know, ghost stories, the gothic yeah. novel, not I, I necessarily the same. My dad on, on, on our bookshelf when I was a kid, he had like a book called Three Gothic Romances. And I said, mm-hmm. dad, dad, what is this? And he said, I don't know. And, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and then later in life, I realized that one of the writers was Benjamin Disraeli, who is a mm-hmm. prime minister. So, it, what, and I've never understood. So, what is the Gothic? Well, is that going to give you a, a, a stroke if I ask you what the Gothic is? <laughs> well, I mean, one of the, one of the things I just said is that people use the word in lots of different ways. So it will be okay. it will be hard. But you know, there's there's an old fashioned sense of that word, which tends to mean a castle, someone imprisoned in hmm. the castle. Um, a narrative of, of escape and courtship, maybe young and I imagine lovers. There's a moor. There's like some sort of misty yeah. moor in, in it, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, okay. I, yeah. at this point, it sort of gets you know. Now we're shading forward into something you might call gothic romance, which is a little later, wh- where it it really does get um, more romantic. It's not just some some like person locked up in a in a convent somewhere, but there's often uh, definitely a courtship plot somewhere in there. Um, but th- but at that point, it's, things have already changed a little bit. By by the time you get to the you know around 1900, ghost stories are a really big deal, mm. and we have a thing we call horror, yeah. which some people think is gothic, but yeah, it's, it looks pretty different actually. So so when you tell the computer to read sci-fi. It can say it can it can read stuff from the 1870s and then read stuff from the 1970s and roughly say, okay, this is the same general thing, but with yeah. with with gothic horror, although some people have said that they're related, this the the, the our, our computer time machine is not able to make the same kind of of of, right. of, of unified claims. Okay, That's so right. so so there's two things going on here, right? There's there's at the time whether a genre is. It has fuzzy fuzzy boundaries, right? And then right. over time, is is there some sort of unity that stretches? Is there? Like yeah. How how much does it change? How consistent does it stay over time? Right. Okay. And these are potentially things that you know could we could potentially study about aspects of history that aren't just stories. Yeah. Um, I think that's where it could start to be more broadly useful. Yeah, when I, I I'm gonna when I read your work, I uh, get really excited to use your methods as a way of looking at political ideology. They, yeah, I think that it it it, it maps a lot onto genre. Um, we tell the same kinds of stories about the rise of liberalism, the decline of liberalism, and it'd be really interesting to get some kind of corpus and people to break down. Well. Is the language that people are using changing in a particular way? Can we make these right. kind of chunks? So, 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 you've mentioned the detective fiction really briefly. Is there is detective fiction as solid as science fiction, or is it more muddy, like like it's, horror? It's gothic? even it's even more solid. Oh. Um, yeah, but but um, yes. And it changes about as as little. Although the the thing that's really surprising to me is how little science fiction seems to change in in terms of the way it's different from other kinds of fiction. Mm-hmm. Because you know balloons and submarines definitely get replaced by by computers and rocket ships. Yeah. But but the the nature of the difference between science fiction and other fiction seems to stay really 
um, stable. Now, now I know that the computer's reading the nature of this difference, but is there a way that you can sum up the nature of the difference? Like, how does that nature I mean, of the difference feel to you? Sure. I, I mean, it's it's super clear with detective fiction because it's just what you would expect. There's a murder. There's a detective. Yeah. Those with science fiction, it's a little bit more complicated to to say. Um, but I, I would I would say you know um, the word some people uses sublimity there's a there's a kind mm. of mystery so you, you to put it really concretely like you you often have um people blinking or groping or you know words like wonder in, oh. in a science fiction whatever period is written in there's this sense of i'm trying to understand something that's you know really um boggling me yeah there's i, I think of that first the, the 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 opening scene in star wars where you don't get a cityscape you don't get a person you get a gigantic field of stars right, and then a right. story scrolls off around the, the stars and then you get at the this the, the spaceship that the scale of which is right. is is you know, may, takes your breath away. So there's something. Right. The thing that unites science fiction isn't the 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 the, the scientists and the lasers, but yeah. this using the tools oh. of science to grope for something bigger right. than the human. Yeah, even even words describing scale, mm. like huge or tiny, are are more common in science fiction novels than in other works. There's there's that sense of of um, awe. Yeah. Wow, and I'm so I'm thinking about detective fiction, and you're saying that it, it changes really little. And I, what strikes me is 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 how true that is a, 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 about reading habits. You know, you talk yeah. to a person who likes detective fiction; they're still reading stuff from the 1920s, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Agatha Christie and, and Dorothy Sayers are still, you know, among the bestsellers of detective fiction today, and they're like deeply different from. So, so that seems to pan yeah. out. Um, yeah. So, uh, are there any other genres that you've looked at, or just just these three? Or, or? I'm fantasy lately. I've been looking at because, of course, the the puzzling thing: p- people who are fans of science fiction are very often fans of fantasy mm. fiction. So so much so that people sometimes treat them as the same thing. There's a yeah. term like speculative fiction. So I wanted to see, or you know, how similar or different are they, and. Um, and also, what's the what's the story about fantasy? Has it been as stable? I mean, in a way, it seems like fantasy should be even longer lived than science fiction because you know swords are older yeah. and don't date as as rapidly as ray guns. <laughs> um, but the, in fact, the story is is the reverse. If you if you go back to the nineteenth century, it's really hard to find anything that maps onto what we now call fantasy. There are yeah. you can find. You know, like Alice in Wonderland, children's fiction, some, but it's it's not when we apply the computer to look for similarities. It doesn't really look a lot like the kind of quest romances we call fantasy now. Does it all begin with 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 the Hobbit? Not not that not at all. Actually, it's oh, it's a very gradual. Really, yeah, uh, the story I, I I've always thought is that what we consider because I played D and D and all these. Yeah. The the story is that 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 that. All, we're all just just making new versions of the Lord of the Rings, and a lot of the the things that I would think would be picked out as very distinctive about fantasy: yeah. orcs, dwarves, elves, yeah. elves yeah. magic, uh, spell books. All of that seems like like really, really finely encapsulated in the in the Lord yeah. of the Rings book and the Hobbit. But it's that's not the case. That's I, that's not the story I'm seeing. It's oh, I mean, wow. it, it's certainly true that you can you can 
find a lot of imitators of J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, in the last few decades. But but actually, the story seems to be that um, it's a it's a gradual sort of crystallization of this pattern that's already happening in in the you know teens and twenties of the of the twentieth century. And I don't see a particular like you know leap that's associated with with the publication of the Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow. What is interesting and and sort of rapid is in the last twenty to thirty years, these these genres, science fiction and fantasy, have both their sort of started to dissolve or, or the, the term that um, Gary Wolf uses about this is evaporate. He says that fantasy is evaporating and, and lending a strange smell to the whole literary atmosphere. And in other words, even mainstream writers are starting to pick up certain tricks from science fiction and fantasy. And you can see if you, if you model this with a computer, the, the edges of the genre start to dissolve. And, and conversely, it seems that at least some of the science fiction fantasy that I've read these days that's 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 contemporary has been really literary in quality. You know, yeah, it's really exactly. Been, 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 been the only difference between it and literary fiction is that maybe there's an alien or, or, or weird things in outer space. Or, or, right. Huh. Right. So, or, and so, it may only be halfway into the story when you realize, oh, wait, yeah. this is <laughs> – something's weird here. So – you, this this way of looking at at fiction from a, a, a big scale, you can probably look at at, at things at, at different things other than genres, right? And I, I'm wondering, yeah. can you like right now a big a big topic that people are talking about is 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 gender representation? And I'm yes. wondering, have you looked at that at all? Like, do, is do are women equally represented in fiction for this entire 300 years? Like. Do women no. have equal speaking part? Do, do, do they pass the Bechdel test in, in, in the 1700s? Do they ever pass the Bechdel test? Um, well, you can find some some books that uh, I think what, um, you know, two women both with, um, you know, names and speaking parts um, talking to each other about someone who's who's not a, not a man is the Bechdel test. Yeah. And you can find some books in any, in any period that will pass that. But the the big story is um, not one of of even representation. In fact, um, surprisingly enough, if, if for at least part of the time, as we move forward in time, things things were getting worse. As we went from the nineteenth century forward into the twentieth century, you find fewer women and girls as characters in fiction. Um, not not more. So, so and, the nineteenth yeah. century you have more women and girls than the early twentieth yeah. century. Yes, all, all the way up to the 1960s when it gets quite quite low. It sort of bottoms out in the 60s, I, I and the mean, reason is. Of, yeah, you tell. I was gonna. I was gonna make an idle speculation about about boomers yeah. being about <laughs> you know having bad gender norms, but you tell me. Tell me the real. Well, reason. I mean, I think the 60s were pretty bad actually, and and that may be you know why it bottomed out then, um, but. I think the, the big the big story about this is just that there are fewer women writing fiction oh. than there had been in the 19th century. It's pretty it's pretty even and you know even number of men and women writing fiction. But as we go forward into the um, the 20th century, it it drops. And by the 1960s, it's like a three to one ratio. More more men are writing fiction than women. Wow. So fiction gets really, really masked. And that's also, oddly enough, the, the time when fiction seems to get a certain kind of status about it. Like in the 60s yeah. and 70s, you get like uh, uh, this Hemingway-ish uh, 
yeah. Who, who's the guy who wrote Trump? Arthur Miller. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, all these. I just imagine them boxers. Ken Kesey getting yeah. drunk and 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 doing ir- irresponsible things and writing like prose that could be described as like sweaty or masculine. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And going and, on TV and, and talking about it. And yep, yep. It's a particular image of what it means to be a writer. Yeah. And, you know, um, very masculine, hard drinking. And that's not at all what the image of fiction writing had been in the 19th century when it really wasn't a high status profession. Oh. Um, you know, it, poetry, high status in the 19th century, not not writing fiction which is just like for fun you know so so indeed what what it looks like happened here among other things is as the as the novel became prestigious more men wanted to do it and they kind of pushed into territory that that had belonged to women um, before that and and, and something that you 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 mentioned that that i think is, is worth pulling out is that you're also able to to chunk these things out by by the gender of the author right and so I, stop me if I'm wrong, but it seems that when women are writing over, like over this long period of time, they have more female characters than men. Yeah, absolutely. That's why there are fewer women as characters in fiction. As as more men start writing fiction, um, men, I think about a third of their characters consistently for the past two centuries, only about a third of the characters in books written by men are women. Whereas wow. in, in books by, by women, it's it's more the world we actually know where it's an equal number of, of men and women. Well, is that true even 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 today? Even in the even today, as far as I can tell, yeah. Wow. yeah that really has not changed. <laughs> wow. I mean that's striking. That's really yeah. I mean that's 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 how it seems that that in the male world there's only you know there's there's two thirds men and one third women, but to yeah. be able to quantify it, that's that's really striking. Yeah. Are you able yeah. to tell, like, is there ways that men and women do different things or are described in different ways throughout this time? Or, or are they yeah. just, like, in addition to being mentioned more or mentioned yeah. less, do, do women do different things? Do they, like, hug more? Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, um, the you know, one of the questions that we were interested in, looking at – looking at how women are underrepresented inside the fictional universe, we also wanted to ask sort of how strong are gender stereotypes? Are, you know, as, as the novel becomes more masculine, do gender stereotypes also get, get harder, Um, you know, more stereotyped basically. And one way you can pose that question is, um, again, using a computer, basically ask a computer to predict, looking at just what a character does and the way they're described, no, not knowing their name or you know any pronouns or anything like that, is this, are we talking about a man or a woman in this yeah. fictional world? And if, if the computer finds it really easy to predict that, then you know there's, there's some aspect of gender that's pretty stereotyped or pretty predictable like just from what the character does we know their gender role and it would and just just to just to just to 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 uh uh make the example change the example a little bit like you can imagine doing this as a a a, a test in a psych lab you give a care yeah. a person description of of what a character does without any you know stripping away exactly. all the identifying things and you say is this a man or is this a woman and then you can grade the probability right. with which right. they can guess right 
Exactly. Okay. And if they if they if they guess right most of the time, then there's some there's some stereotype that they're using that's that's reliable in in that world. Yeah. Um. So we you know when we studied this, we found that actually while while men were kind of taking over the world of fiction in terms of the number of of people writing, it was still true that gender stereotypes were dissolving or softening the the gender roles in the world of fiction were actually getting more complicated or looser um so it's it's a complicated story i think i think basically there are some big social changes underway that we are right to imagine as progressive over the last um 200 years you know the the expansion of the vote and um the expansion of job opportunities lead to different ways of thinking about gender roles. It just so happens that in fiction, it was also true that, well, partly because women do have more job opportunities outside writing a novel. Um, there are fewer women doing that and more more men doing that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, that the whole world was, was backsliding in terms of gender opportunities. So you're able to see two different movements, a structural shift in which novels become a high status occupation that is dominated by a, a, a number of like highly competitive testosterone fueled men. Yeah. And on the other hand, many more opportunities in the job market for women, which means that they, you know, people who are smart and good at words might say, become a lawyer. Right. right. Rather than just having having the outlet to be exactly uh, be a writer. And then the other hand. And so that that gives like a, a, a some sort of retrograde uh, pattern. So mm-hmm. that leads to fewer female writers right. and more male writers who tend to write more about men. But on the right. other hand, you have a cultural shift yeah. where people are becoming, for lack of a better word, more progressive. And within those masculine testosterone soaked novels, there's still less gender stereotyping than before. Yes. Am I getting that right? Yes. Yes. Oh, you know, exactly. Two two changes that seem contradictory, but they're going on at the same time. That's fascinating. And so so what are these gender stereotypes like? Like do women like what sort of things do women and men tend to be doing differently? Do we know well, that? Yes. I mean you you can you can you can look at that, crack it open in detail, and one of the interesting things about it is that it changes. It's like we think oh. of of stereotypes as being very stable and sort of things that lock us into the past, but actually, the the stereotypes that we're seeing change all the time. Um, so, in you know, in the nineteenth century, um, for instance, you you know, you know, it's you know, it's a, a character is male if he owns a house, if hmm. if his property is mentioned, if if a character has Thoughts and feelings, not just emotions, but really, you know, um, even a mind. Right? If, if their if their thoughts are mentioned, they're more likely to be a woman. The inner life is really? more often used to characterize um, women in the 19th century. But as we move forward, that that contrast between sort of the public world that's male and the inner world that's that's feminine. Um, Gives you know dissolves. That's not as important in the 20th century. And instead, um, bodily description and clothes are, are you know re- really used to separate the, 
sort of identify genders and weird things that come out of nowhere. Like for a while in the middle of the 20th century, it becomes masculine to grin or chuckle, but hmm. feminine to smile or laugh. It's just the, those words become very gender coded for for a couple decades in the middle of the 20th century, and then that collapses. I mean, that's such a big finding about the nature of, of, of stereotypes or of, of gender norms. When I'm reading undergrad essays and they talk about gender norms, the feeling that I get from them is that they believe that there is kind of a cookie cutter gender norm that's existed for like 300 Forever. years yes. and that that you either conform to it or you don't conform to it. And this is showing us that, you know, in, in something that we know from, from our, you know, tacit involvement with the past, that those dorms change. You know, yes. what I, I, some, in, in, in my research, I, I, I look at the culture of the 18th century and one of my arguments is, is for lack of a better world word, how did people, how did men in the 18th century become cool? What did they do that got them that, that 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 allowed them to show off and gain a certain kind of status? And it's really weird and different from stuff that we do today and stuff that we do in the nineteenth century, uh, you know, eighteenth century, seventeenth century. They, you know, do things like measure really well, or uh, do scientific experiments, or collect, or or my my big example, they do competitive mathematical bell ringing. You know, that would be a way of showing that you're cool. But so this is a way of, of showing over a long period of time, over a longer period of time than, than any individual reader could grok, how these, these gender norms are changing. That's really fascinating. Thanks, so, yeah. I thought, it was, I, I, I thought it was surprising. Yeah, that, that, is, that's, that is really surprising. And I, so I have, I, have a, I, have, I have a final big question for you. And, and it's, I'm a historian. I, I, I hang out with other historians. I think mostly about about how to do history better. And your book it was it was it was a great read about literary history, about history confined to th this this particular kind of thing: the novel, the poem, writers, art. And I'm wondering, this, I, I like reading, but what's the yeah. use of it? Like, why why is that important for us to understand? Well, I mean, part, part of it, I, I would say, I, there's sort of two answers I would give. Part of it is just the fact that we enjoy reading. That's yeah. that's ultimately the big reason I think we we care about novels. And, you know, they may be socially or politically important, and that matters too. But honestly, if we didn't enjoy reading them, we wouldn't care about them nearly as much. So I, I do try to connect the stories I'm telling to sort of what it is that people enjoyed about science fiction or what, you know, what made something, as you say, cool at a particular yeah. point in time. Um, but it's, it is also true that the, the stories that you learn when you look at something like the way gender roles change, they, they definitely spill outside the covers of a, of a book. And there's, there are stories about the way people live their lives. And, you know, for instance, one of the questions I'm posing now is, um, when we look at the gender stereotypes in fiction, how how much are those like the gender stereotypes we see when we look at just biographies and autobiographies? You know, yeah. people telling the stories of real lives. Are do we see the same sorts of patterns? Um, so it's it's really often not a very big leap from a, a fictional book to history. 
I mean, this is why I love I I, I love your work, and I, I I hope to drop lots of citations to it in in my work because it's a way of being able to get at this thing that seems really important and yet is hard to pin down, which is culture. What yeah. is it like? What sort of scripts are people running? How? What do people think about a given thing? Do they think mm-hmm. this is good or bad or laudable or unlaudable? What do people mm-hmm. want to be? What's a and 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 this seems like a very good way of being able to fix it. So something struck me. You said we like literature. We like to study literature because we like to read. But I'm I'm a reader. I've I've always loved yeah. to read books. I. I grew up with a novel in my hand, but I feel like an outlier right now. I don't feel like novels have that kind of cachet anymore. And I feel that everybody who likes novels ends up becoming like you and I, an English major, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then it went, after we get through our undergrad uh, English major career, we often don't like reading anymore. Um, yeah. So what's, what do you think, what, what do you think the future of, 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 of books might be of, of reading of novels, not of, of books is, do you think that, yeah. that, that it's, that, that there's going to be some sort of artistic renaissance or is it all just TV for the next hundred years? Will there just be, will, will future literary historians just be studying Marvel movies? Yeah. You know, I, I think um, it's, I think one has to sort of hold two different things in tension at the same time in answering that question. And one is, it's definitely true that the reading of fiction occupies less space in culture than it did a hundred years ago. You know, we have just a lot of other ways to spend our time and we we do, you know, there's, we're on social media, we're watching Netflix or, you know, um, the, so yes, it, it occupies less space, um, less time, but also people have been predicting the end of written fiction for, well, you know, hundreds of years actually. And, and it keeps refusing to, to really die. So you, I think you, it's useful to think to, to be able to say like, yes, something is shrinking, but that doesn't mean it's going to shrink to zero anytime soon. Partly because fiction still has this complicated interplay with other cultural forms where someone will write a book and then it gets made into a movie. And um, so it, it's still part of the, still part of the, the mix, but but definitely, like as we go forward thinking about culture, I think it's it's going to be really important to pay attention to the the whole spectrum. You know, television is important now, and um, we're going to need to be able to tell historical stories about the evolution of of televisual forms, just yeah. just as we do about fiction. I, I think about video games. The, the kids these days. Are socializing on Fortnite. It is yeah. Fortnite is a is a venue for social activity in a way that that, that phones or or IMs were for 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 my generation. And and God, you know, I, I have pity on the future historians who have to, to understand that world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so, so, Professor Underwood, this has been fantastic. I, 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 I thank you so much for coming on the uh, the show. Um, if you are curious more about uh, Professor Underwood's work um, and want to check out the fantastic graphs and dig into the method, uh, get his very readable book, Distant Horizons, uh, which is published by the University of Chicago Press. And it is an inexpensive paperback. It's not one of these academic books that will cost you $90. I think I even bought it on sale. 
Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of book that can go on sale. Uh, pick it up. It is, it's fantastic. Uh, find Professor Underwood at Ted underscore Underwood on Twitter and at TedUnderwood.com. Um, any, anything I'm forgetting? Not at all. Thanks, Brendan. It's been oh, a pleasure oh, to be here. And I have to close to, by thanking uh, Duncan Barton for making our image and Jonathan Lear for making our music. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes and tell your in-laws, especially. I have not yet heard of any, but of any in-law disliking the podcast. This is a podcast for in-laws. And now there's a parent listening too. So, you know, spread the word. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, and I'll be with you next week. I think uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the history of of uh, spiritualism in the early 20th century. I will speak to you.